So hello and welcome to another Paro seminar. This is uh, live and direct from Belfast, um, as the next at least 12 will be. Um, what I wanted to do for this one, it's not very festive, it is December. <laughs> um, I should have done something related, but uh, I, for some reason, I don't know what, like I, am, I, have a, I have a perverse interest in the culture wars like probably a lot of you. Um, and I don't talk about it very much. Occasionally on the fundamentalists, Elliot and I will, will have a little back and forth about it. But um, I don't really talk much about it in these seminars, partly because um, it's very difficult to bring kind of philosophical reflection into that without bringing in biases and, you know, and there's so much that's designed to evoke emotion, right? Whether it's make you laugh or make you angry. Um, there is a lot of disinformation, um, you know, so anyway, it's a hard thing to kind of get into, but I'm going to try. And I thought, I thought I would do it because now I'm not living in America. I've come back to Belfast, so I can kind of give you my thoughts on um, some of the cultural and political stuff that's going on around the world, to be honest, it's global, but particularly in the US and UK, uh, Western Europe, uh, some of the issues that we're seeing there. Um, so the outline of the talk or the discussion is um, a seminar is I want to start by talking about identitarianism and identity politics. So I'm going to use those two terms to describe two positions that are very dominant in today's kind of uh, cultural and political discourse. And once I've kind of tried to give a definition of those terms, I'm going to try to give a definition for enjoyment. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the type of enjoyment that sustains those positions. Then I'm going to talk a little bit about anxiety, what anxiety is and how anxiety functions in those positions. And then I'm going to try to show how they are intertwined. So that's the, the idea. So the first thing I want to avoid is equivalence, right? Whenever people are talking about this kind of stuff, the, the first critique is, oh, well, when you, when you split these into two sides, they're not equivalent, right? And that's absolutely right. These are not mirror images of each other. There are interesting differences, but they are dialectically intertwined, right? And that's what I'm interested in, is how do these two uh, ways of thinking uh, link together and fuel each other? And um, I've got a particular, um, I want a particular emphasis on one of them. So first of all, identitarianism and identity politics. What, what are those? Why do I use those terms more than and instead of some of the other terms that are used, like right and left would be obvious, right? Um, so identitarianism, I'm going to define as, um, uh, identitarianism is, a position which believes that there is a universal, right, that, that we are all connected to and connected with, a positive universal. And there are outside influences that threaten to undermine that universal. So, you know, the very extreme form of identitarianism is kind of old school fascism where there's a kind of universal folk or group or people 
Uh, and then there is this outside influence that threatens to destabilize these universal principles of justice, and uh, reason, logic, the enlightenment, whatever it is. So that's kind of identitarianism. Identity politics is um, a position in which uh, all seeming universals, all seeming universal positions actually hide uh, various biases. Uh, injustices and uh, systemic racisms and sexisms and other things. So any particular universal that puts itself forward as um, a way of understanding the world, kind of like a, a global epistemology, is always seen as a hidden regional epistemology. It's, a, it's really a localized historical regional position developed by a particular group that is then dressed up in the guise of universalism, that it applies to everybody, and that's the problem with it. So on one side you have kind of the universal, and then there is an enemy, a threat to that universal, he threatens to undermine it, and in fascism it's the Jewish community, uh, but it can be, you know, uh, with some of some people who are identitarians today, it might be kind of neo-Marxism, it might be kind of feminism, might be whatever, right? As a as a threat to these universal um, uh, understandings of truth, beauty, justice, logic. Then on the other side, you have a kind of a celebration of multiplicity, different groupings who are regional who have intersectional identities, so we all have different identities, some of them intersect and some of them don't. Um, but there is no universal discourse. In fact, I saw something just the other day where somebody on Instagram was making the claim that uh, the Western kind of enlightenment philosophy is a form of um, uh, implicit white supremacy. For the, and the reason for that is because it presents itself as a universal. It presents this philosophy as a philosophy that helps us understand the nature of reality, the nature of being. It's, it's basically, whether it's mathematics or physics or biology, it's this is the way to describe and understand reality. And the person was saying that indigenous communities have regional epistemologies. They have ways of thinking about the world, understanding it, working with it. Um, that are not universal, that are regional and that are embraced as regional. And um, any, any system that universalizes is ultimately kind of uh, fascist in nature, right? So that's kind of the identity politics. And those two positions are fighted out all the time on YouTube, right? Um, now, uh, Let's see. Oh yeah, in the in the I said the enemy within identitarianism is some sort of outsider who threatens to destabilize. The enemy in identity politics is the one who dresses themselves up in the universal. The one who says that they stand for uh, that which is always true forever throughout history without resolve. So that is, that is the enemy in, um, in identity politics. Uh, so in the first one, it's the one who threatens the universal, and then the second, it's the one who stands in for the universal. Okay, so that's that. I've described identitarianism, identity politics, the enemy in identitarianism, and the enemy in identity politics.
Now I want to talk about the enjoyment that sustains these two positions. In brief, I'm going to cover a lot tonight. Um, so the first thing to understand about enjoyment is enjoyment is always connected in psychoanalysis, French psychoanalysis, enjoyment is always connected to the real, right? Which means, very simply, <laughs> enjoyment is always connected to a certain disturbance, disruption, um, impossibility, right? Threat. So whether it's a threat, an impossibility, disruption, right? enjoyment is always in some respect connected to that and that's the real because the real is in a sense what disrupts our symbolic universe it disrupts our world now pleasure can be what maintains homeostasis in us so you get pleasure from eating a nice meal and it satisfies you uh, gives you energy it tastes good uh, or you buy a car it runs well gets you from a to b certain pleasure and all of that right but that's not enjoyment enjoyment is a surplus to pleasure right so enjoyment is and, and right they're so interconnected that it's hard to pull them apart but i'm going to give you some examples where they're kind of pulled apart so you can see this um so uh, enjoyment is always surplus to utility so just today i saw on instagram um there is a there's an instagram called uh oh what's it called something capitalism or something i forget but it's kind of just funny memes but it was this woman who is very famous i don't know who she is but she's obviously a famous pop musician or actress and i think it's james corden if that is the is the person who's in the car with her and he asks her he says oh, i've heard you've got like four or five cars and she was like yep yeah, i do she says i have a lamborghini i've got this maserati i've got this porsche right she lists all these cars that she has and then james corden says um, but is it true that you don't have a driver's license? And she goes, yeah. And he says, so you can't drive? She says, no. And then he says, so why have you got all these cars? And then she just stops, she thinks, well, to get my picture taken in them, right? Now, um, that's kind of surplus enjoyment, right? It's not the pleasure of the car, even the well-made car gets you from A to B, it doesn't break down or anything like that. There's a type of surplus to its utility. and. It's more obvious in this example because she's not even using the car for its for what it's what it's used for at all. Like it's literally these are just cars that sit there and they have an enjoyment sitting there without any utility whatsoever. And you see that also with these guys who are selling, you know, how to uh, become rich as an entrepreneur, and they'll be talking behind a Lamborghini, um, which is often not their own. Um, or they wouldn't drive it because they don't want to damage it, right? It's, it's, they're, but they're getting enjoyment from it, enjoyment purely from the excess of its utility. Um, another example, one that Shizek uses is uh, during the last recession, uh, supposedly um, some people would go to Walmart and they would put all their shopping in the shopping trolley. They'd go around and at the very end, they would just put the shopping trolley to the side and walk out. Right? They wouldn't pay for the goods, they wouldn't take the goods. What they were doing is, we think of shopping as the thing you have to do to get to the purchase. Right, So you go around, you get the stuff, you go, you purchase the goods and you enjoy them, right? you, or you take pleasure in them. But what some people were doing who didn't have the money, they wanted to still relive the shopping that they were doing without being able to buy the product. 
So they were kind of in a way um, in enjoyment of the kind of like almost the, the disruption, the thing, the annoying thing you have to do to get the product became directly embraced because there's an enjoyment in that, in that kind of like obstacle itself. I also read years ago about some businessmen in Japan who supposedly would um, take flights places and then fly straight back. And the idea was, you know, in the past, I think maybe these people had either taken flights to business meetings or taken flights for holidays and maybe they didn't have any business meetings anymore. So they took the flight anyway. Um, and again, the flight is the annoying thing you have to do to get to the business meeting. But in these scenarios, the person was directly embracing the enjoyment of the disruption or the obstacle to the meeting. <laughs> um, completely divorcing the pleasure, right? Um, I even saw, my goodness, it sounds like I'm on Instagram all the time, but a friend of mine sent me a thing today um, where these guys and girls were all together in this restaurant and the interviewer asked the woman around the table, would you rather have a boyfriend or Instagram? And each of the women said Instagram. Uh, now, it, it, might, it probably was a, a performance or it might not have been. It didn't look like it, but you know, you, you don't know. But still what made it interesting was in a sense what Instagram can give somebody is desire but without needing to fulfill the desire. So if you've got a boyfriend, they might desire you and then you sleep with them and you sleep with them and it's a culmination of the desire and then they don't desire you for, for a few hours or a few days or whatever, right? So the sex kind of like takes away the desire, but Instagram can give you the desire without end, right? So you get the desire of like the going out on a date and having a nice meal without having to do anything at the end of it. Um, again, that's kind of almost like the enjoyment divorced from the pleasure. <laughs> um, and so enjoyment in a way is always connected to say impossibility, impossibility and obsessives and jealousy and hysterics. So you may desire what's under threat of being taken away, jealousy, right? You're jealous and then that jealousy creates love and desire. So you don't, you're not jealous because you love. You, um, you love because you're jealous, right? So the jealousy is able to kind of create a certain amount of enjoyment. Now, a painful enjoyment. You might not like it, but, it, but it's enjoyable even though you don't know it. Just like a child who's waiting for a Christmas present might look like they're upset and they're sad. But there's kind of enjoyment of the anticipation, even if it's experienced as suffering. Um, or impossibility, someone who only desires who they cannot have, right? Their desire and their enjoyment is inflamed by impossibility. So in a nutshell, I don't want to go too deep into that, but I just want to establish this notion that enjoyment is to some extent connected with the real, with disruption, with impossibility, with threat, with destabilization. And that makes us human, by the way. That's, the, that's kind of a very big difference between us and other animals, is um, our ability to enjoy not the, the end, right, which is instinct, the thing that you get, but rather enjoy the never-ending process. So an instinct, an animal might want to have shelter, create shelter and then is content. Whereas a human being, they have a drive, so they get a house and then they want to get an extension and then they want to get a second house, then they want to move houses, right? There's a certain sense in which 
there is a enjoyment beyond the mere utility of having a place to sleep. All right. Um, now, as I'm going here, I'm kind of, I'm drawing a picture. I'm trying to get somewhere. Um, please feel free to disagree and please feel free to put in your thoughts. Um, I'm trying to build kind of a, a framework uh, to understand some of what's going on that can sometimes be hard to, to grasp. So identitarianism, identity politics, the enemy in each, what enjoyment is. So what is the kind of enjoyment that underlies this? Because here's a trick. Enjoyment always finds a way, right? If you want to understand things, look for the enjoyment. Um, people are getting enjoyment everywhere, right? And um, doesn't look like it sometimes, but I'm going to give you some examples of the type of enjoyment that you find in identitarianism and the type of enjoyment that you find in identity politics. So the type of enjoyment that you might find, you find in identitarianism is the kind of enjoyment in which your way of life is threatened. So for example, right, say, say, you know, you're in America and you're part of the, you know, you have a gun and you want to protect your family and you want to protect your way of life, right? And even going to the park or going to the bank can be dangerous, right? You want a gun, right, to protect you from the enemy who is potentially going to disrupt, threaten the, the American way, right? Now, this is a great form of enjoyment because it makes even going to the park kind of exciting, right? In the same way that you might fantasize somebody breaking into your house, right? It makes living in your house more exciting, right? Is that the fantasy that even going to the park with your children could result in a fight and a gun battle and death kind of makes, um, makes your everyday mundane life actually quite exciting, right? That's why a lot of people even want to go into, into battle, you know, protect the way of life. But by protecting your way of life, you raise that way of life into a sublime. It becomes something much more significant, much more interesting. So there's a form of enjoyment there. So weirdly, there can be enjoyment, uh, unconscious enjoyment, because enjoyment is mostly unconscious, is um, uh, in seeing these shootings and these kind of like catastrophes on the news because they raise the stakes they raise the danger and therefore, as I say, can make your everyday life seem quite exciting. Um, so in terms of identity politics, the enjoyment is sustained by, I'm just, I've made a few notes here, I'm just thinking, sorry. Um, <laughs> I've made a few notes, which I don't usually uh, look at too much, but I've realized as I'm looking at them that I shouldn't because I can't read my own handwriting. <laughs> um, uh, oh yeah. Uh, no, I can, right? So I, I mentioned kind of two forms of enjoyment. The one is an external threat that, that, in, that threatens and endangers your everyday life, that therefore helps you enjoy your everyday life. And then secondly, the enjoyment of seeing the inconsistencies within identity politics. And right? you see this a lot online, is um, a lot of identitarians enjoy, because there are logical inconsistencies in in identity politics, like one of them, for example, is if, if you say there are no universals, well, that is a universal, right? Um, if you say that all, of, all groups are different, again, that is a universal. So what you find is 
a lot of enjoyment in terms of identitarian enjoyment is whenever people who are kind of in identity politics are showing up for being logically incoherent, for not going with facts, with kind of making logical fallacies. So there's a lot of enjoyment in videos that are designed precisely to, to expose that, right, that inconsistency. Okay, so in identity politics, where is the enjoyment? Um, well, here, um, there's an enjoyment of the threats of the, uh, the, the people in power who say they represent the universal. There is the enjoyment of fighting this threat. I've used the example before, but the love trumps hate signs, right? We love Trump's hate, right? The, the, the unconscious meaning of it is there's an enjoyment in fighting this, uh, this universalism, which is really, um, it's like, a, you know, very influenced by Foucault with the idea that underneath any of these universal claims is actually bias and, uh, uh, you know, particular group interests and fighting that. And also a big one is the enjoyment of exposing that exposing it as impotent, exposing it as bigoted, exposing it as castrated. So there's a lot of videos in which say, for example, the Karen phenomenon, where like a white woman is exposed as being sectarian, racist, right? So it's kind of and the enjoyment of that because it's kind of going like, this is a person who is a representative of the universal and here they are being exposed for really having horrible views right so there's this really enjoyment in in disrobing the the positive universal to show how it really is um advancing a particular group right so those are two types of enjoyment i'm going to come back i'm going to talk about more types of enjoyment in a second but um that this brings so there's so in other words all positions are sustained by enjoyment that's that's kind that's what i was kind of saying when you go like look for the enjoyment is there's, there's different types of enjoyment, identitarian enjoyment, identity politics enjoyment, and they're not the same, and they're not just uh, mirror images of each other. They're, they're quite different. And when you look on YouTube at what each group gets pleasure from, you can see that there's a slight difference. And as I say, so the videos on the identitarian side are, I can't remember the guy, Crowder, is it Steve Crowder or whatever, who goes to like university campuses and kind of tries to expose the logical inconsistencies and fallacies and stupidities of kind of the ident identity politics crowd. And then in terms of identity politics, there's all these videos that expose um, kind of like kind of white, uh, you know, that white European philosophy for being kind of uh, prejudiced and bigoted and kind of like exposing behind the curtain, right? So those types of enjoyment, those videos do very, very well, right? But now I want to talk a little bit about anxiety, and hopefully all of this will make sense. There's, there's a, there's a, uh, they, they all are connected. <laughs> so now from an enjoyment to anxiety, because they're connected. Very briefly, the Freudian notion of anxiety, and we're not going to go into it in depth, but the Freudian notion of anxiety is connected to the fear of the loss of the primary object. Uh, you know, think of the mother as the primary object, is that, that the mother is this, this wonderful kind of oceanic presence 
And when the child has to separate from the mother, causes the child anxiety. So when the child goes to school and the first time the mother's maybe standing there with the father, and the, the child has to leave and there's a certain anxiety that the child has in this kind of separation in the weaning process, right? So Freud noticed that there was a connection between anxiety and the loss of this primary object. Now what Lacan does in brief is he sees this and agrees with Freud, but he kind of pushes it so far that it kind of becomes its opposite. <laughs> Where he kind of says that the, the real anxiety of the child is not the loss of the mother other, but actually the loss of the loss, the over proximity of the mother other. That what the child is really anxious about is that they won't get enough space. Like they need, in order to become a self and to get into the world, there's a certain sense in which they do have to, to break. And then often a child's anxiety of, of losing the, the parent is actually then mirroring the, the parent's anxiety, right? And then the child goes off into school and they're happy as Larry, right? They're getting on. Um, but the reason why Lacan talks like this is he says that basically the, the the anxiety is when you get too close to the object of your desire, it starts to fail and it starts to become monstrous. Um, it starts to, again, a number of things can happen. So it's almost like, you know, if you're a guy and you're going out with a, a woman, you may want her to be a little bit like your mother, but if she's too much like your mother, suddenly you'll be put off, right? <laughs> um, so that would be kind of getting too close to the mother other. Um, there has to be a certain distance. Um, but it's a, uh, a good example of this is, uh, well, in adulthood, you either, and we've talked about this before, obviously I've talked about it, but you know, if you get what you want, it can be a disaster, right? Absolute catastrophe to get what you want. That's over proximity. You actually don't want to get what you want. There's a certain sense in which getting what you want can be really difficult. Like it, when you realize it's not what you want, when you get what you want, you realize it's not what you want. Um, and also, so you get what you want and it doesn't work. Oh, yeah, it does work. Um, oh yeah, you get what you want, you, you're able to get it, it doesn't, it, it, you know, it feels, you feel melancholic. Or the closer you get to it, um, the, more, the more monstrous it is. The closer you get to it, the more uh, you start to get this feeling that, yeah, oh my goodness, this is not going to work, right? What you want is a certain, a certain distance. Um, and I, okay, an example of this might be when it, during COVID, I noticed that I had a certain relief whenever COVID was happening because I didn't have to go out and I could blame it on COVID, right? I needed a, some obstacle, something in the way so that I didn't have to go out um, and kind of have a good time and hang out with friends, right? But it wasn't my fault. I wasn't choosing to do it. It was COVID's fault, right? So I was being castrated. I was being prevented from going out. Um, and so in a way I felt better because in Los Angeles where, you know, I should be going out and hanging out and going to parties and going to bars and having a good time, it's not enjoyable, right? It's not enjoyable. It's actually anxiety producing, it's stressful. It's, it's kind of like, um, it's, it's too much. But having COVID then allowed for an obstacle that meant I didn't have to go out. I could blame it on COVID 
Um, and then I felt loads better, right? Um, instead of having to make up excuses myself. So in anxiety, what happens is in our society of the demand to enjoy, if you have a society in which, which tells you, you can do anything, right? If you, if you manifest, I know in LA, you people like this, but if you kind of like imagine what you want and you name it and you're certain about it and you move towards it, you can have it, right? So you're in a, and LA is an extreme example, but you're in a world that's saying you can do it, right? You people all around you saying work hard, do this. I've got friends who make videos and this stuff. Like they're always pushing you and going like, you can do it. And here's the, here's five steps to success. And you know, every day work hard and you know really kind of almost saying that if you don't do it it's your fault right if you if you don't if you don't make it it's because either you're not thinking right or you're not working hard enough or you're not optimized enough or you're not smart enough or whatever right that's that causes a lot of anxiety because it's almost like there are no obstacles no it's not like in the feudal society where you literally couldn't go anywhere or a caste system where it doesn't matter how talented you are this the system is such that you will never move up right but when you're in a society where at least on paper right not in reality but at least in terms of all the, the adverts and the movies and the people on social media are all telling you that you can move up that you can be rich, that you can have the person you want, you can have all the friends that you want, you can do it, then you've only got yourself to blame, right? And it's anxiety producing. It's anxiety producing in a whole pile of ways, either you know, getting what you want or not getting it, right? Or, or, and, and trying to do all the things and looking at all the courses and manifesting and you know, doing all of the, I mean, the religious version is the name it and claim it, but the secular version is the secret, but they're all the same. You know, you kind of like, you know, you focus, you imagine, you think, positive affirmations, you go for it. Well, you've only got yourself to blame. Um, in that kind of environment, a lot of anxiety is created on one hand, and on the other hand, a lot of jealousy, right? Anxiety because it's not working for you, right? Jealousy because it seems to be working for everybody else. For the person who's got the Lamborghini behind him and is telling you that if only you sign up for their course and do what they tell you, then you can have it, right? They seem like they've got everything, right? They're the undivided other. So not only are you anxious yourself, you're also jealous of them because they seem like they're undivided. So what's the solution? Well, in a society like that, what you will increasingly get is people wanting uh, to reimpose uh, prohibitions, to reimpose limits, right? To enjoyment. Um, to why? One, to ease anxiety, and two, to keep enjoyment alive, right? So the two things are to ease anxiety because why? When you have a limit that says it's not your fault, you can't have everything you want because of this limit. So with COVID, when I was feeling, when I was in the house, I can't go out and have a good time because no one's going out because we're all locked away. All the restaurants are closed. All the bars are closed. That limit did not feel bad. Now, it'll feel bad for other people, but just this is an example. It felt relieving. It relieved a certain level of anxiety because now I, I could blame someone for not having pleasure, <laughs> which is quite enjoyable. And that brings us to enjoyment is 
you can only have enjoyment when there are limits and constraints and possibilities and, and disruptions to your everyday life. So it minimizes anxiety, it maximizes enjoyment. And so you get a couple of things. One is I want limits on myself. Children are like this. If I have time, you know, I should have talked about this, but I haven't done enough kids, but I've heard like, oh, kids need uh, limits, right? Whenever, if, the, you know, if you're an enlightened parent who says, I'm not going to give my child any limits, society limits everybody. I'm the embodiment of society to my child. I will let my child do anything. The child will have an incredible amount of anxiety because they, there's no limit. There's no limit to their enjoyment and their enjoyment becomes too much, right? And they can eat all the chocolate they want or play Nerf ball, all the Nerf guns, all they want. And it creates anxiety. And what happens is when the parent comes in with prohibitions and laws, the law eases the anxiety and creates enjoyment. Even if the enjoyment is, oh, I can only eat chocolate once a week, that makes the chocolate enjoyable. But eating chocolate any time takes the enjoyment away, right? So the bringing in of the law eases the anxiety in the child and increases their enjoyment. So in the same way, what I want is I want limits on myself sometimes, limits on myself, and also limits on the other. I want to take away their enjoyment. I want to make sure that they're not having a good time. So to use a couple of examples, and this is, uh, you know, we'll use COVID. And in COVID, it's always difficult because you're talking about real virus and real issues, but you're also talking about real forms of enjoyment, left and right. And it's hard to kind of peel them apart. So let's look at identitarian enjoyment during COVID. That would be the threat to normal life, doing normal things, going to the park, going to the shopping center, hanging out with your family, right? Normal mundane things are under threat. And they're under threat because you have to wear masks, you can't go certain places, you have to be in certain bubbles, right? So the enjoyment, the identitarian enjoyment will be uh, transgressing those prohibitions, right? And transgressing those prohibitions because it makes normal life uh, more exciting and more interesting. So that's, that would be identitarian enjoyment during COVID. And identity politics enjoyment over COVID would be wanting to limit the perceived enjoyment of those people, of making sure that they're castrated, of one, having the limits imposed on yourself, and two, making sure that they have the limits imposed on them, because they're, they seem like they're going out, having a good time, and that's a danger, right? Now, it's a danger in two ways to the person. Is one is they're going out, it might be a, a real physical danger, but also there's a danger as in we don't like to see the other's enjoyment that we are somehow not getting. All of this to say, we start to move towards a society in which the society of the demand to enjoy, and I would say identitarianism and identity politics are both caught up in that God of the demand to enjoy, a society of, of our permissiveness, and are both our responses to that society of permissiveness. Both are different responses and different ways to enjoy um, uh, in that type of society, right? So they're both responses to it, but they both have non-emancipatory modes of enjoyment. They're both non-emancipatory. Why? Because identity politics, identitarianism, I'll do that first, identitarianism, 
can only enjoy through scapegoating and othering and having an outside enemy who is the problem, who is limiting their enjoyment, but really maximizing their enjoyment, right? It looks like this enemy is minimizing their enjoyment because they are, for example, threatening the way of life, threatening, uh, you know, when you go to the park, go to the, the shopping center, there's a threat, a danger, right? So they're threatening your way of life, but actually that is enhancing your enjoyment of everyday life and also minimizing your anxiety because there are these limits, these limits to your full enjoyment. Um, but also identity politics is non-emancipatory because it also others and scapegoats. It also sees a group as the enemy, <clears throat> the problem that needs to be gotten rid of, that there is, you know, hidden under universalism is a particular group that runs things that needs to be, that needs to be taken care of. Um, so what is the solution? Uh, the solution is always the same in my seminars. <laughs> uh, and last month I talked about the negation of negation. <clears throat> and that is the solution. What is the solution is if identitarianism says it stands for the universal, but actually it stands for a particular group in the guise of the universal. And if identity politics stands for particularism, there are only particular groups, there is no universal, all universals are just disguised forms of bigotry. Um, then the negation of negation is where you say there is a universal, the, universe is the, the universal is the negative itself. What unifies everybody is self-division. What unifies everybody is not a positive universal, uh, but what unifies us all is we are all orchestrated. There is a sense in which none of us get full enjoyment. And the problems arise when we deny that, when we imagine the others having full enjoyment, uh, when we try to get full enjoyment, whenever the anxieties that that creates, the, the damage it does to our forms of enjoyment. And if we can create communities in which we liturgically enact the idea that we are all orchestrated, including the absolute, including reality itself, including God, then we break this, this um, scapegoating mechanism and we no longer see the other as somehow fully enjoying while we are not. We go, none of us are fully enjoying. Now, that salvatory move looks different depending whether it's a, it, it, it breaks into identitarianism, it looks different if it breaks into identity politics. Um, maybe we should do a seminar on that actually, because we don't have time now. But it looks different depending, but it's kind of the same thing. It's somehow exposing this, this lack, this castration that's part of everything. So it internalizes the prohibition. It's not an external law, it's a law written in the heart. It's not an external law that is imposed, it's an internal law in which we go, there is struggle within, there is, there is always an impossibility that is part of life, and we have to somehow enjoy and embrace that within us. Um, there was one other thing I wanted to say about all of this. Uh, what was it? Um, damn, I forget. Oh yes, <laughs> yes, thank you, that, good. Um, so here's the danger. The return of the, the external law um, 
often comes from the outside, right? So we see there's a fascist dimension outside of the permissive society, right? There's an enemy outside, the Nazis are coming, right? And, but there's something even more dangerous, and it is when the liberal, tolerant community become fascist in themselves. This is where the snake eats itself. This is where, weirdly, a coincidence of opposites happens, where it's the very group in the name of tolerance is intolerant, in the name of freedom uh, limits freedom. Um, and that's where the danger is. That's where the real danger is, um, is the very groups that, that talk most about tolerance and love and acceptance weirdly unconsciously become the very group that starts to embody its very opposite and that's what a symptom is a symptom is a coagulation of a contradiction and the results um, of that of that coagulation of contradictions symptomatic is kind of these explosions so you'll have like politicians who talk about loving the poor but are doing insider trading um who talk about um uh, you know, I don't want to get into too many examples, but there's those are the danger. Yes, there is an external danger because there will be groups that um, want to impose laws and limits um, uh, on the outside. But but the but the big danger is saying that's why I called this talk. Um, what do they call it? Fascist hippies and totalitarian mystics, because what what you find is sometimes what a hippie commune eventually becomes very dogmatic right? and mystics um, can often become very totalitarian right those kind of communities which op are open to everybody and they all love and all kind of like all permissive create such levels of anxiety and such levels of failure and enjoyment that what then begins to happen is they find unconsciously ways of bringing in dogmas and rules and limits um, uh, in order to, in order to take the anxiety down and to keep enjoyment going, and say that the response I haven't really given the solution in a big way. Say every every seminar I give is the solution really, but it is the community in which we realize that um, that enjoyment comes from embracing the struggle and the sacrifice. That is not an external law, but an internal limit. Okay, I'm going to stop there. Um, I do feel like um, there was a lot in that. I'll maybe just recap very quickly. Identitarianism, identity politics, different types of enjoyment um, kind of like uh, stabilize and infuse them. Um, both of them deal with anxiety and try to minimize anxiety. And uh, both of them have different types of enemy, but ultimately both are non-emancipatory forms of enjoyment because both scapegoat and other, but in different ways.